Hey guys, welcome to the Black Media Minute. This is where we dive into the ins and outs of the media business with black creatives and industry professionals. Emphasis on black. I don't know why. <laughs> I just felt like it today. I'm the host of this podcast, Kimberly Foster. I know it's been a minute. I'm so sorry. I'm so ashamed. Let's get into the interview. I talked to Morgan Rhodes. She is a radio personality, a DJ, a music supervisor. She actually got her start in the film industry working with the Ava DuVernay. They worked together on Ava's first film, Middle of Nowhere. Morgan also worked on Selma, as well as the first season of Queen Sugar. And now she's working on the Dear White People series on Netflix. It's an incredible resume. And Morgan, being a woman of many talents, now has a podcast called He Rocks, where she and her co-host talk about classic albums with guests. Let's hear Morgan talk about her incredible career. Here we go. I guess what I'm interested in knowing is if you remember your first music-related memory. I do, actually. Um, my mother used to play Diana Ross, Touch Me in the Morning, um, on repeat, um, the album. And I didn't know the significance of it until I got older. And, and I asked her and she told me, yeah. Sometimes, you know, um, when your father and I would have a little tiff, you know, um, I would play that. <laughs> I would play that to, uh, to sort of make myself feel better. And it was the first time I sort of realized, even as a kid, um, the power of music to not only channel your emotions, but really speak to whatever you're going through. I was just too young then. I was a l really little girl then. But I just remember like a people playing music on repeat because it wasn't other songs. It was just that particular jam that she would play on repeat every now and again, Saturday mornings. And, uh, and so that's, that's my earliest memory. Mm -hmm. And you said that your father was really into music. He really liked music. He did. And so that would be my second, um, musical memory and maybe a bit more, um, profound only because I had the experience of a whole album with him the first time around. And that was uh, songs in the key of life. Mm -hmm. And so he played like the whole thing where we were going on a long trip and he played the whole thing. And so mm -hmm. that was, that was my, my experience. In fact, we're, we're going to have someone on the podcast uh, in a month or two to discuss songs in the key of life. And I can't wait because it'll, I'm, I'm sure it'll bring back a whole bunch of really good memories of that time and that trip with my dad. Were you able to go to that that tour when Stevie went on tour a couple of years ago? I was not. And don't think I wasn't hurt. I was like, please, is it not happening? And I think I might have been working or something else was going on, but I really, really want to see him. Um, I'd love to do... In fact, I was at... Um, I was at this place out here. I don't, I, I don't know. If, are you in New York? Are you... Where are you? Are you in New York? Right now I'm in Dallas. Oh, oh, nice. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, at the Soho house here, I was hanging out with a couple of friends and um, I was getting a little bit tired and I was like, man, I'm going to cut out. I hadn't been there that long, but I was really tired. It had been a long day. Got in the uh, lift to go home and uh, I got one of my friends text, texted me and said, you left, you left five minutes too early because Stevie Wonder just got here oh my and gosh. you got on the mic and started and started singing. 
And I was like, I hate my life right now. (laughs) (laughs) I hate my choices in life. So that would be a dream for me and would love to hear him do like an acoustic set um, of of some of those songs, or even if I'm if I'm dreaming and thinking big, I'd love to see him do it with an orchestra. Mm-hmm. I think that would be um, incredible. Yeah, I don't want to rub it in, but <gasps> <laughs> I will say that I you know splurged on like the the VIP packages or or whatever because I was like, who knows if Steve is going to tour again? It was I go to concerts all the time. It was the best concert I've ever been to, including Beyonce. Like, wow. it, it was, it was, it was li- such a spiritual experience, man. It was, it was so, so great. So I feel terrible now. I'm so sorry. I'm, I, I just had to get it off my chest. It was, it was like hurting me. It was beyond, beyond. Um, wow. Yeah. <laughs> Did you grow up playing any instruments? I actually played the recorder, which is thoroughly unsexy. Mm-hmm. Um, but I went, my dad was in the Air Force and I went to a, we lived overseas and I went to a Church of England school and uh, British kids played the recorder. So I did. Um, I, I can't speculate on how my skills were back then. Probably, probably just super suspect, but I, but I had enthusiasm. Mm-hmm. I really did. And that, that that's about it. Yeah. You've described yourself as genre agnostic. Does living abroad have anything to do with that? Um, I think part of it does, but I think I think uh I think the other part of it is falling in love with genres back to back. So I fell in love with with dance music and at the same time I sort of fell in love with, with hip hop. And then at the same time, you know, I had grown up hearing a lot of soul and I love gospel. Um, and then those things led to other things, jazz and, and, and blues. And so when I say that I'm genre agnostic, I, I say I mean that I'm not overly devoted to one. Like I'm, I'm, I'm thoroughly moved and inspired by house music. Um, in the same way that I'm moved and inspired by gospel music. Mm-hmm. Um, and since I believe that all music is black music anyway, I think that they come from the same source. So it's possible um, to be in love with more than one genre at once and not be devoted, overly devoted to, to anyone. Mm-hmm. So in the work that I do, um, I'm always trying to sort of play with putting uh, a genre we don't expect um, in a place where we do think a genre should go. So I'm always sort of trying to play with that, bend it a little bit. Um, not gender bending, but genre bending. Mm-hmm. Um, if that cues, uh, if you had in mind hip hop, let's do something else. Um, maybe house music works there. Maybe broken beat works there. So that's sort of what I mean. Yeah, you better come on with the preaching all music is black music. Yes, <laughs> recognize the it foundation is. of culture. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So how did you get into DJing? You know, I fell into that thing. Um, I started volunteering um, at KCRW, actually. I I thought that was the way to get into voiceovers. I wanted to read spots. And uh, one of my homegirls said, you know, you need to, you, this, is, this is how you get into voiceover. Go up to a radio station hang out there and just talk a lot. Like every time you get in, you know, you talk to people in the hall, just start talking and they'll hear you 
that was possibly the worst career advice I've ever received. Okay. Cause that, that it never happened for me. Um, uh, but, uh, I did end up becoming a DJ. I started, uh, being a production assistant for two, uh, prolific DJs, Garth Trinidad and Jason Bentley, both of whom are still on KCRW. I worked on their shows for three and a half years. And then randomly, um, Garth said to me, um, I've submitted your name, you know, for a show. And I was blown away. Um, and that's sort of how it started. I started, I became a, a radio personality, a radio DJ um, after hanging around there for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then on the, on the slide, I started acquiring a lot of vinyl. And uh, one of my, my good friends who's a big time house DJ here was like, well, you want to learn how to DJ, we're going to learn on vinyl. And so she basically taught me in her in her living room. Uh, but my love was for radio and it has never gone away. Still love radio and, and, and loved being on the radio as a DJ. Mm-hmm. So for those two years, what, what were you doing? Um, for the two, three years that I was supporting Garth and... Uh, Garth and, and Jason, basically my responsibility was to input the track listing um, and to answer all the calls. And KCRW has a music library um, right outside the, the DJ booth, uh, the studio. So I would go in there and, and uh, if they had stuff on their list that they wanted to hear, I'd take it out, load it up and get it ready. A lot of uh, music supervisors um, have started in radio. Um, a lot of ones that are working today, we all have that in our history. So I think it is sort of a gateway drug to music supervision because you've got access to a whole lot of music, um, and, and, uh, the possibility of discovering a whole lot of music. Did you ever feel discouraged during that time? Like that wasn't really what you wanted to do. Um, I didn't, uh, I didn't because, I was so excited as a music junkie and as fans of both of those DJs. Garth Trinidad is incredible, an icon in this city, and also Jason Bentley. And it was it, Jason Bentley's show was called Metropolis, and he played dance music. So it was just like getting my fix. Garth Trinidad's show was called Chocolate City, and he played, you know, rare grooves and soul. Um, and at the time that sort of neo soul was was in its you know, in its heyday, he was playing a lot of that stuff. So I wasn't discouraged or disappointed at all. I thought it was an amazing gift to be around two DJs that I really respected. And uh, and also just to listen to music. I had no idea I was going to um, get a show. And so that all those thoughts had sort of gone away. I was like, I cannot believe that I, I, this is what I actually get to do um, on Tuesdays with Jason and Saturdays with Garth. So mm-hmm. I was I was thrilled. Mm-hmm. What time period are we talking about? Um. 2003 was mm-hmm. when I started. Mm-hmm. Um, I started in the mailroom and I worked there for answering phones for, gosh, a year, year and a half. And then um, the volunteer coordinator there said, listen, um, Jason Bentley needs a, a production assistant. Um, would you be interested? It's on a Tuesday night. And I said, yeah, absolutely. And um, and then I said, I love Chocolate City, too. So if that ever opens, please let me know. And so I started doing that. I worked with Jason for, for two years. And then um, Chocolate City had an opening. So I did both. I just couldn't get enough, like just obsessed with music. And so uh, in 2006 was when uh, I got approached by him about having a show. And then I got hired 
as a DJ in February of 2007. Mm -hmm. And I had a show on the air on KCRW for a year. Your passion for just the music really comes through. I hear a lot of DJs talk about the joys of just spending time with the music, digging through crates. Can you tell me a little bit about what that means to you? What type of feeling that brings for you? Oh my gosh, that's such a great question. And and thank you for, for asking me. Um, it is... Wow. It is so exciting (laughs) to discover new music and to look for it. And it's so much fun to connect the dots and to go down a road. Um, Certainly, uh, the Internet has helped um, with new stuff, but just old school, like looking for records um, I like a, a website called discogs.com. Very dangerous if you're a record collector or enthusiast because it's easy to go down a rabbit hole. And so I give myself homework. I'm the child of a college professor. And so that homework thing is, has always been sort of like ingrained in me. So someone will talk about something and I'll be like, do I know enough about this person? Do I know, do I know enough about this band? Or I'll read about a new genre, then I'll go down a rabbit hole. It's thrilling. I, I don't know how else to describe it, except um, it is like the best, the best news you've ever heard. <laughs> and that's that there's some new music and you can, go, you can go look for it. And then I love to connect the dots. And I'm also looking for stuff that's obscure. So it's like a puzzle. It's like, it's like finding that forgotten about artist or forgotten about genre or a genre people didn't really know existed or I mean I'm literally like I'm you know I'm so excited saying this right now because mm-hmm. that's how it feels to me I'm just like ooh. <laughs> and when you find something that you think works I'll pull stuff for projects I don't even have yet um, just to be ready that if someone's like, do we know anybody black, any black women doing country that are sort of like, um, they're not from the U.S.? And I can say, yes, there is a black girl doing it. And she lives in Brighton and she's in a band or used to be in a band called Phantom Limb. And I love being able to to say that because it gives me an opportunity to talk about artists that people don't know. And that for me is really thrilling um, because especially when it comes to black artists, because there's so many artists that are in genres that get hidden. And so that's, it's just, it is euphoric is all I can say. I'm just like, are you kidding me? So excited every time. If I, if I'll be somewhere and I'll hear some, you know, a coffee bean or some coffee place. I am running to try and get close enough to Shazam that if I don't know, <laughs> and I'm short, so I really have to stretch to get to the speakers <laughs> to lift my phone up. But it's my favorite thing. It's like I'm getting goosebumps right now just yeah. thinking about it. It's thrilling. The record shop is not really a thing anymore. I mean, they are few and far between. How has the shift to digital music changed the way that you discover new records, new artists? Um, It it has taken away the waiting period. 
Because whereas when you go to a record store, and we've got a couple of great ones here in L.A., um, if they don't have listening stations there, you've got to um, either go out on a limb and wait till you get home. I've got a pair of turntables in my living room. So that little 15 or 20 minute drive is just like I'm anxious because I can't wait to put it on. What digital, the digital age has done this, taking taking guesswork out of it. Mm-hmm. I can I can hear that before I buy it. Um, I can I can buy it right away if I don't want to buy um, a, a record. I can buy it right away. Um, some a lot of times on Discogs they have like YouTube clips so you can listen to stuff. Um, and so it has taken I guess the waiting period out of it, and also makes available some stuff that the record store might not have, stuff that's really obscure um, that I can order. Um, the record stores don't have, and trust me, I've called a bunch of record stores looking for stuff, and they'll be like, "Man, that's that's out of print. We don't have it." And I go online, and and they do have it. So it's taken the guesswork out of it and the waiting period, but it it has also um helped me to find stuff that's not available at stores. All right, so you um got your own show. Yep. And while you were on air at KCRW, Ava DuVernay discovered you. And she called you up and said, I want to work with you. Is that what happened? Um, almost. Okay. My show, uh, my, my, <laughs> my, I've been on a couple of radio stations. So my show, after a year, my show got canceled. Okay. And so I started floating around. This was in 2008. My show got canceled and I was floating around. I was doing a, uh, a podcast for um, a, a a show called New Soul Radio is connected with New Soul Magazine here and just sort of floating around. And then um, I had the opportunity to audition, fast forward a couple of years, had the opportunity to audition for a show at a radio station here called KPFK. And I had auditioned for an afternoon time slot. It was like a, a world music show from two to four or something like that. And, um, and that was the show that uh, that Ava heard, mm-hmm. and she reached out to me um, after that. Mm-hmm. And so um, she said, "I'm in post on a on a film, and would you like to music supervise it?" And the rest was history. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't know m- much about music supervision except that people at, at KCRW had done it, and a lot of radio DJs had done it. But that was sort of the extent of my of my knowledge. So I learned everything on the fly. So she knew that you were new to this world. Of music supervision. Yeah. And she said, oh, I, yeah. I like your vibe. I trust your instincts. Do this for, for me. Yeah. Wow. So how did you learn what to do? Well, I have a mentor in the business and I was like, yo, what do I need to know? And, um, and he basically said, you need to know how to clear licenses. And this is what you do. And I was like, great. And fortunately, the first uh, project that I worked on was Ava's Middle of Nowhere. Mm-hmm. We used mostly unsigned indie artists. So it wasn't like excessive paperwork that you have to do with um, signed artists on labels that have tons of writers and tons of publishers. Um, these were all, you know, indie, with the exception of two artists. I think we used um, Little Dragon and we also used Michelle De, De Cello. But the rest was seamless seamless because they were unsigned artists. And so um, we had, you know, legal paperwork and everything, but it wasn't eight writers didn't have to sign off before we could use the song. So it was, it was incredible. What really struck me as I was doing this research to talk to you was 
this is really not that long ago, <laughs> right? Like, Middle no. of Nowhere came out in, like, 2012. Yeah, six years ago. Yeah. Six years ago. Yeah, it's remarkable to see how much work you and Ava have done since that time. Yes. You've worked on a couple of more projects um, with Ava DuVernay. She uses a lot of the same people, same director of photography. Um, Bradford yeah. Young has done incredible work. Um, what's it like to work with her? Thrilling. I mean, you have someone who is not only a visionary, uh, but someone who's committed um, to making sure um, that that we sort of all get our wings and we all get a shot. So to your point, it, it has been six years, but this happened because um, she was willing to take a, a shot on on someone that w- that had never done this before. Mm-hmm. And I think she's consistently opened doors for a lot of us. Um, and so, I mean, you can't, that, that sort of uh, trust um, and, and that sort of opportunity is, is invaluable. Right. I mean, it really is. And there are a lot of us that got our start um, on, on her projects and she's opened those doors for us. So uh, it is, it's humbling and it's, and it's incredible. And, and I'm really, and I'm really grateful for having had the opportunity to work with her and she's brilliant. So. Yeah. Um, Ava makes it really easy to root for her because she seems like such a we person, you know, like it's never, right. right. Yeah. About self aggrandizement. It seems like it's, it's so collaborative. Right. And a beautiful thing to see. Um, and in what now I think is sort of a movement. Um, I was saying to someone the other day, I was like, these are the blackest years in TV and film I have ever seen in my life. And I've been black for a really long time. But a lot of people are, um, you know, getting thrust into this world of film and television. And a lot of it has started with people opening doors uh, for one another and um, believing in each other's talent and believing in, in each other's potential. Um, even if it's been a long time since you've had the opportunity or you've never had the opportunity. And, uh, and certainly um, Ava has been a model um, for doing that, for, for, for um, letting other people shine and opening those doors um, so that, so that people can shine. Mm-hmm. So you also worked with uh, Ava on the film Selma, which is a, I did which is a period piece. Um, Something that was really interesting to me when I was listening to the soundtrack is, of course, it's set in the 60s, um, but there's also some contemporary music integrated in there. And I'm wondering how you decide what the balance should be. That's a good question. Um, We had used um, Think before. We'd used, um, we used Think in Selma. The song was, uh, Yesterday was, uh, Was Hard on All of Us. And we were Fink fans from middle of nowhere. We just liked his um, acoustic vibe. Um, we liked his voice. And so I have to say, I think there was sort of a, a really organic and spiritual um, element to Selma. I mean, everything sort of fell into place. Um, things felt right. The songs felt right. Um, and we used, which was, a, was very innovative on Ava's part, was her um, decision for us to go with sort of B-sides from 1965, um, that not to go with top 40 1965. Uh, we had a few things that were notable um, that people would know in there, keep on pushing the impression, the um, uh, Curtis Mayfield. We had that and we had um, staple singers 
why are we treated so bad? But for the most part, we had stuff that people hadn't heard, um, which was wonderful for me because I like the obscure. And I think it was a, a, a really cool decision. So uh, we always take chances. I mean, we always had. And uh, she's got great music sensibilities and, and um, is indie-minded. So it just worked out that way. It balanced itself out. Mm-hmm. Do you see yourself as a, a kind of music historian? Well, uh, you know, I don't know. I, I feel like um, at, at the core of me, I feel like just someone that's like blissfully obsessed with music. And I, and I hope um, that in some of the work that I've done, that, that I'm able to you know, answer questions that people have about music. So in some ways, I, I see myself as some sort of teacher mm-hmm. um, or someone that just is, you know, excited about passing on the knowledge because I love to be asked that question. Who is that? It's my favorite thing to be asked because it gives me an opportunity to talk about the music. And sometimes that for me is more fun than playing the music, mm-hmm. um, which is why, you know, doing the podcast and doing some of the work that I do on KPCC is such a joy mm-hmm. because it's just exciting to be able to talk about it. Um, you know, if if I'm ever considered a music historian, that's a huge, huge compliment. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just love to pass along the information. It's almost like a music pusher. Like I've got it. You know what I mean? If you need it, <laughs> I'm gonna make sure make sure that that you get it. So it's just a, it's just it's just um, work that get, gets me really excited. I'm really grateful to have the opportunity to do it. So you've had a couple of big movie moments. What's it like to sit in a theater and watch a film with your music synced for the first time? Emotional, emotional, and uh, I think a lot of that has to do with. Um, just the I've been I've been very fortunate to work on some amazing amazing projects so a lot of that has to do with the projects themselves you know watching those visuals but it is it is very emotional Um, emotional because of the journey Um, emotional because it's only been six years and there's some part of me that's like are you kidding Mm -hmm. (laughs) is this what I actually do Um, and uh it just I'm just awash in gratitude um, for it all, uh, for the chance to be able to do this in such a time as this. Um, so, yeah, it's just it's emotional. It really is. How much of you makes it into your soundtracks? Is it you there or is it something completely outside of yourself? Um, I think it's me. I, I, you know, music supervision is a collaborative effort. Um you don't come to all of those decisions by yourself. You work with directors, you work with producers, you work with showrunners. And so it is a collaborative project, but the work of digging and finding that stuff is me. And uh, it's, I, I very much go on how I feel when I look at some clips in preparation to pull stuff. I, I, I very much go on um, not just what, what is going to be the right song, but what's, what's really the, the best the best song to really capture that emotion. I mean, I think um, that's informed by my own experiences. Um, how, how do I, if this was happening to me, what would I want to hear? If I'm finding out that, um, you know, uh, I'm getting married, or if I'm, if I'm falling in love for the first time, or if I'm stuck in traffic, or I'm running down the street and, the, and I get to the door and the place is closed, what, should, what, should, what would I want to hear? 
And so um, I bring a lot of me to the table, I think. I bring a lot of uh, of my own personality, I think. Mm-hmm. And you bring a lot of blackness to the table. Uh, I've noticed a oh, lot yeah. of the, the projects that you've worked on have been, um, you know, capital B black. Is that intentional? <laughs> Uh, listen, I love my people and I love black music and, uh, and I've just been, been really, really, really fortunate. And, and really, if there's a cue that for a genre, like I said, with country music or with classical music, I'm trying to find somebody black that's doing it. Um, I'm just trying to, uh, you know, repeat some of the stuff that I've seen, as I was saying earlier about, you know, being able to open doors and being able to give, um, give an opportunity or pass an opportunity along. I feel that way with music, um, even for artists that have passed away um, and passed away with no fanfare. You know, I see, I feel um, excited about being able to do that, especially as it relates to black music, especially as it relates to black music, um, because it's so rich and so diverse mm-hmm. and we're all over everything. So, so yeah. Uh, what's the difference between, um, music supervising a big feature film and music supervising a show like Queen Sugar? Time. Um, time. Episodic television moves a little bit more quickly. Um, and so you don't do, you don't choose songs in one fell swoop or you don't choose them for, um, you know, for, for an hour and a half feature film. You have to choose several songs for each episode. Um, so I'm working now on Dear White People. There are 10 episodes. And so for each episode, you choose a series of songs. So it's it's continually working as opposed to with a film. You sort of like, you get the cut of the film, um, you get certain clips, um, but you, you, you pick in a, in a more condensed time frame, I would guess, than episodic television. Yeah, you know, Dear White People is coming back for a second season and you're working, you did the first season and you're going to do the second season. That's right. Okay. Exciting. I am wondering now, like, if you feel like music operates as its own language in these projects? I, I think music fills up the spaces. It, 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 um, it underscores moments and then sometimes it fills up that moment. Mm. It's sort of like a seasoning, right? Um, but also an appetizer. So in some places you have two people looking at each other and the script calls for them not to be saying anything. But you've got to speak for them with that song. And you got to be careful um, that you don't choke out the moment with, with a song that doesn't really work or that you're telling people how to feel. You, you just have to interpret what's going on. And so to that to that end, I think that music is a is a character and is a person that walks in the room when that scene is playing and says, um, "This is what this moment is about. This is what this argument is about. This is what these tears are about." Um, music is the is the interpreter, the conduit, I guess, the empath. You know. You mentioned um, you did a podcast back in two thousand eight, um, and now you have a, a new podcast, Heat Rocks. Yeah. Why did you want to come back to podcasting? You know, I work with um, Oliver Wang. I worked with Oliver Wang on Here's Me and these other radio stations. So 
outside of the heat rock thing, I, I'm on KPCC here on a show called Tuesday Reviews Day. And it's a, there's a revolving panel of critics that come in, and we each have three albums or three songs to talk about. Um, and we did it on Tuesdays because music used to come out on Tuesdays. So Oliver Wang and I were in the, there used to be eight of us, and he and I would always get paired together. And we just got cool. We just, we just kind of struck up a really easy and cool friendship. And uh, he came to me a year and a half ago. Um, and so it might've been a year ago and said, listen, I'd love to do a podcast and I want to talk about seminal or canonical albums. Would you be interested in that? And I was like, are you kidding? And so, um, we started off talking to an ethnomusicologist about the chronic that was sort of our pilot episode. And I really liked it. We met again and I said, I'd love to do this show. Um, but can we tweak it? And can we talk to um, artists about seminal and canonical albums? Can we talk uh, talk to them about other people's albums? Because I want to give artists the opportunity to be generous to other people. Um, I thought it would be dope for another artist to hear that an artist um, thought your album of 10 years ago or 15 years ago was amazing. And so he and I sort of finessed um, you know, that plan, and the result is Heat Rocks. We ask... Um, the same eight questions uh, to artists and writers and scholars about seminal albums or albums that have profoundly influenced them. Mm-hmm. And it's been it's so much fun so far. We love it. What makes an album a classic? Like, is there a set of criteria that people continually bring up? Uh, I, I think, I, I think it's all uh, really, I think, I think opinions can vary on that. But for me, what makes something seminal or a classic is that it has some cultural relevance, um, that it has social relevance, and that it stands the test of time. Mm-hmm. Um, that when you listen to it years after, um, you're just like, this This isn't dated, this doesn't feel of the moment, and that you realize even 10 years later, like, man, this was a classic. Songs in the Key of Life is a classic. There, there's there's no question about that. That's one that people would not, you know, no one would argue, argue you down about that. Um, but I, but I think uh, Mary J. Blige's "My Life" is a classic, right? Uh, and so I think it depends on you know where you're coming from, um, and that's that album is deeply personal. By contrast to "Songs in the Key of Life," which is um, spiritual and political uh, and personal points, but you see the difference. So for me, it's an album that holds up well, uh, and that is a conversation worthy years later. And hits on some touchstones that you'll never forget. I feel like R and B heads would probably agree that my life is a is a classic, right? Is there is that debated? <laughs> it, it it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be. <laughs> if you debated with in my house, okay. we're like thumbs up for that. But maybe people that aren't as well versed in R and B R and B fans uh-huh. may not put that in a, a you know they, they might not say that belongs in the canon. Mm-hmm. They may not consider that period of R and B canon worthy. Mm-hmm. They may stop at the '60s or the '70s, and I get that. It might be a generational thing, but but for folks that remember my life, um, not just when it came out because I was in college uh, when my life came out. But I, I just remember it was the first time in a long time that I could hear everybody in the dorm playing the album front to back. Mm-hmm. 
I, I just remember thinking that, and I and I listened to my life uh, maybe three or four weeks ago, and I was like, well, and it just took me back to the back to that time, the mm-hmm. production value, the samples that were used, um, the vulnerability that was Mary, set against the context of what she was going through at the time, mm. coming after what's the four one four one one, and when we were just introduced to Mary. I mean, man, what's the 411? This is 1992. Mm-hmm. And by the time we get to 94, I think, 93 and 94 in my life, it, things have changed and remark- and remarkably so. Mm-hmm. Um, so to me, that's a, that's a classic and uh, deserves to be an R&B canon. Yeah. Um, all right. So just to, to veer off a little bit, I actually meant to bring up that you went to Clark Atlanta. I did. All right. So I am so interested in people's AUC experiences. Okay. Um, what did you major in in college? Math com, radio, TV, and film. Okay. So you were setting yourself up for this sort of career. Man, I, I thought I was going to be a writer. Mm. I, I really did. I, I, I thought I was going to do um, screenwriting. I think what happened to me there was I got bitten by the radio bug. I mean, I was already a music junkie, but Clark has a radio station, WCLK. And I used to hang out there because of this show called Hot Ice in the Afternoon and these two DJs, um, Ken Beatty and Ken Nice. And they just had such a cool show. And I went to Clark 92 to 96, uh, which were amazing years for Atlanta, amazing uh, years for soul music. Uh, Neo Soul was, uh, you know, coming coming off of acid jazz and about to roll into Neo Soul. And so... Um, I didn't think I was going to end up being being on the air, being into radio, but I think the music love was really, really deepening then. Mm-hmm. My experience at that time was uh, Atlanta was incredible from 1992 to 96. It was an incredible time to be uh, to be at the AUC. Mm-hmm. I, I love my experience there. I lo- love going to going to Clark. I feel like that's the prime mythic years. I don't know. I feel like I just. <laughs> The Freaknik years before Atlanta became an industry. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Interesting. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And I was at Freaknik 93 and lived to tell. So, yeah, <laughs> I, 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 can, I, I can speak to those being some powerful, powerful years. I mean, you got to you got to think of all that was going on musically during that time. So you've got you got 1993. Um, you got Joy's album, which comes out. Right, mm-hmm. the pendulum vibe, but then you got you got TLC coming out. Then you've got um, Outkast's first album coming out. Then I mean, it was you got Goody Mob's album coming out. Then I mean, it was just it, it was just an incredible time to go to a black school and um, to be at the center of you know so many black schools. And, and then Morris Brown, of course, uh, Spellman and, and Morehouse. It it just you can't say enough about that time. I feel very blessed to have had that experience. Mm-hmm. Did you have any other transformative music experiences besides, you know, everybody playing the My Life album? While I was there? Yeah, while you were in college. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, I went to a record store. I lived on the cusp of um, Midtown and Buckhead. I lived by a, um, a movie theater called the, the Terra. And there was a there it was there, there was a, a record store very close by, and I went into the record store with one of my homeboys, and I think he was from I think he was from Detroit. <clears throat> went in there and um, we had limited funds as most college students do, 
but we were like, we're going to buy this record. But it was, the decision was, are we going to go to the movies or are we going to buy music? And we decided to buy music. And what I bought um, was a CD by an artist named Little Lewis, and the album was called Journey with the Lonely. And I, and I sort of just like bought it on face value. Um, I knew of Little Lewis from a song called French Kiss, but didn't know he was doing anything else. And it was transformative because it changed uh, my understanding of dance music because Journey with the Lonely is sexy house music. And I mean sexy. It's, it, it's, it's, uh, the beats are, are not as oonch, 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 not as with the house music we know. It was slowed down and I had, I, I, I didn't know what had happened to me. Like there was a, sh it was a very short distance between the record store and, and uh, at that time I was living off campus. I was living in my, in my own apartment. And I remember putting that thing in and I was like, good Lord. And when a, when a record is really good to me, um, sounds good and feels good. One of the first things I ask myself is what just happened to me? Because it feels like just how you said transformative. And I was like, my Lord, what type of house music is this? And so that was uh that was nineteen ninety two. Okay, so um back to the contemporary music landscape. I know you've said that you like Insecure. Um another yes, LA <laughs> based show. I am always struck by how good the music in Insecure is. And oh, yeah. Issa has talked about how important it has been for her to, if she was going to have a great show, like she wanted the music to be bomb. I was wondering, sure. as an expert, if you could explain, like, what, why is the music so good? Like, what makes the Insecure soundtrack so bomb? Uh, well, I think one, um, and that's Keir Lehman. Um, he's a great, great music supervisor. I, I think... One, I think it's very, um, the, the appeal of the show and the appeal of Issa Rae is that um, she reminds us of, uh, we see ourselves, and she reminds us of, of all of us have had a homegirl like her and homegirls like our homegirls. And so the music choices don't seem very off-base into what we would listen to. We would listen to all that stuff. We, we would listen to Carrie Foe, and we would listen to Gold Link. We'd listen to girls in the yard we listen to SZA we listen to Nao and I think it's just um it, it's why it's important why that soundtrack is bomb is because one those are hits and and I think two they just go along with the landscape of what's being shown I mean I'm from LA this is my city so it feels very LA to me it's got that LA vibe it's got that LA you know, it can be turned up or laid back, um, but it's got a very laid back vibe. And I think it's just it's just hot music. Mm -hmm. And I think it's I think this show, um, like Dear White People and a lot of the shows that are, are on the air now, um, as I said, I, I do think this is a very black time in television. And this is a wonderful time in music. So it's happening at the same time. Mm -hmm. At the same time, all these doors are opening for us content wise. Um, music is 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 continues to be incredible and so i think it's just all happening at the same time and i think she's the soundtrack has benefited from that and the great choices that Kier has made um but a lot of i think a lot of the shows are benefiting from this being a great time in music and and, and having the opportunity to play our stuff to play ourselves well morgan that is all i have thank you so much for taking some time to talk to me thank you too 
Well, that wraps up another episode of the Black Media Minute. Thank you so much for listening. I appreciate it. Thank you to Morgan Rhodes for taking some time to talk to me. She was generous and fun and funny. Be sure to check out He Rocks. It's on iTunes and SoundCloud. Listen to Morgan and Oliver really, really dig deep on some incredible albums. Okay, so I'm getting back into the swing of things. I want to do this more often. I want to hear your suggestions of people I can talk to. Um, it has to be somebody that I can actually reach, y'all. So, so let's be reasonable. If you have questions or concerns, please send me an email at Kimberly at BlackMediaMinute.com. That's all I have. See you guys next time. Thank you so much. <laughs>